We're almost there, church family. We are almost there. We're on Thought Unit 39 of 40 in our study of the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news that in Jesus Christ we have a king who reigns right now. He's a risen, reigning Lord. He's a king who gave his own life to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us with God the Father. And he is a king who is, the scripture says, making all things new. He's restoring everything. And so last week we heard from Pastor Gina that a part of that restoration is this moment or this season in time where he not only returns, but he brings a judgment because nothing unclean and nothing unholy is coming into the new creation. And so we heard that there's going to be this two-part judgment Last week we heard about the first half of that judgment, which was in judgment of unbelievers. We heard a very sobering message about the fact that all who persist in evil and in rejecting Jesus and the gospel will eventually be condemned. They're signing their own death warrant, death warrant as it were. They'll be condemned to eternal separation from God and all that is good. And as we heard that, we were reminded that this separation from God brings him great grief. That scripture pictures God as a lovesick father longing for each of his children to come home. But also that he's a just and a holy judge. And so he'll not allow anything impure, anything that resists or rebels his good rule to come into the new creation. He's a God of mercy and justice who will bring judgment as a part of the renewal of all things. And so we were invited to be compelled by this sober truth to share the gospel now with passionate zeal. Well, this week we're going to look at the other half of Jesus' judgment, and that's the judgment of believers, us. This is something that's often been confusing for Christians because All of us who are students of Scripture know very clearly that the Gospel tells us we're saved by grace through faith alone. There is no righteousness we could bring to God to to make ourselves right with Him or right before Him. He supplies it. It comes through Jesus, right? The Scriptures tell us, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Or, By one sacrifice, God is made forever perfect, those who are being made holy. And so, why judgment? There are many, many scripture passages that speak of God judging us, including the one that we study today. And I think it can be confusing for a number of us. Why would we come into judgment if we're forgiven of all our sins? And I want to state clearly the simple answer right away, that it's about personal responsibility for the new life we're given in Christ. It's about obedience and faithfulness to the Lord who has saved us. He purchased us by his blood, and we belong to him. And so, we're going to have to give an account for the life that he's given us as we become his. 
And so as Pastor Gina said last week, we are saved by grace and we're judged by our works. So let's read Thought Unit 39 and then we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Thought Unit 39. Followers of Jesus who are saved by faith in God's grace alone will experience a judgment of our works. This means that there will be an inspection of our lives to see what of our motives, work, and ministry are of eternal value. While for some this will be quite sobering, for others it is incredibly hopeful as Jesus promises great reward to those who make sacrifices for him and his kingdom in this life. And then reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, Paul writes, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise or an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. The Word of God. Well, friends, um, September 11, 2001 is a day that most of you here will not only remember, but remember exactly where you are and will not forget. And I want to tell you that there's another day like that for me, and that day is May the 12th, 2008. Anne and I are living in Beijing at the time, and she's 30... Three thirty-four weeks pregnant with Sarah, and goes to a, a, a doctor's appointment at the Beijing uh, Family Hospital on the other side of town. And I'm studying Chinese in our apartment, and all of a sudden, the ground be- beneath us begins to shake, and the buildings that we're in begin to tremor. And it turned out that what we were experiencing in that moment was an 8.0 magnitude earthquake that was happening in Sichuan province a thousand miles away. And actually the epicenter of the earthquake we found out was just minutes from where I had taught four years earlier. Well, as the reports begin to roll in from this, from, from this earthquake, the, the, uh, damage was just catastrophic. They said that between Four and five million people lost their homes and that 90,000 people at the end, at the end of uh, the search, 90, 
thousand people were either dead or missing, buried in the rubble. The worst part was looking at the pictures of what rolled in. I remember vividly seeing one apartment building where the whole front face was just sheared off and you're looking into everybody's living room. You can see the pictures on the wall in all the living rooms and and the only thing that's missing is the floor in each one. The floor had collapsed the whole building down and and families had just been crushed one after another underneath the rubble. Even worse than that was the uh, the pictures and the stories of schools. There were literally dozens and dozens of schools that collapsed in these earthquakes. In fact, in one school alone, 700 children were buried alive in the concrete. Quite a while later, the uh, Chinese government, after some inspection, declared that that there were over 7,000 what they said, quote, inadequately engineered schoolrooms that collapsed. 7,000 schoolrooms, thousands and thousands of children that died. Now, you know, China has at that time a one-child policy. And so in this country where most families are allowed one child, this is a day when thousands and thousands of parents lose their only child. And why? Why did they lose their child? Not because of the earthquake, per se, but because the buildings were, quote, inadequately engineered. What does that mean? That means that, that there were bribes given and taken, that there were backroom dealings that happened, that there were, there were, um, foul play between school administrators and construction companies. And so there wasn't enough rebar. There, there, things weren't properly supported. These buildings weren't built the way that they were supposed to be and they were inspected and they were allowed to pass inspection even because there were more backroom dealings. People died. People lost children because of this corruption. And yet this corruption wasn't the only news that came out of Sichuan province after the earthquake. There was actually some good news that came too. There were reports that began to surface of principals who had come into schools where they had recognized this kind of inadequate engineering existed and knew there was great danger. And they began to push for reinforcement. And when they didn't receive the funds that they needed, they began to personally fundraise and uh, in the end, make it so that their schools were re-engineered and properly able to withstand disaster. And these principals and these administrators saved thousands of lives by their integrity and by their sacrificial fundraising. Now, before May 12, 2008, hardly anybody was talking about the, the corrupt or the sacrificial school administrators. But May 12, 
2008 was a day of revealing. It was a day that brought to the both of them the corruption and the sacrifice to the forefront with life and death consequences. Well, friends, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he's trying to both caution and encourage about just this kind of day, a day of revealing in which he says there will be real loss and there will be real reward. He calls this day the day, saying the day will bring everything to light. And by the day, he means the return of Christ and the judgment that will come with it for believers. And so Paul's calling Christians to live their whole lives with that day in view. And and so he begins by saying, each one of you should build with care. For nobody can lay any other foundation than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever you do, whatever you build with your life, with the gifts and the abilities God's given you, it's got to be built on the foundation of Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ as the only way, the truth and the life, and obedience to his commands. So Jesus as a foundation means that Jesus' person and Jesus' teaching or our obedience to him supports all that we are, all that we do, all that we say. Our whole life, whatever we do, whatever we build, however we we spend our time, our energy, our resources, has to be built on Jesus Christ, says Paul. But notice that Paul not only clarifies that Jesus is the only foundation. He also assumes that each of us is building. He doesn't say, each one of you should build. He's not trying to motivate them to build. He says, each one of you should build with care. In other words, he assumes that anyone who's been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus has been caught up in the great drama of redemption and is now working with God. We are building with him. We're using our gifts to serve the Lord Jesus and to extend his kingdom. This is Paul's assumption. As you build, each of you should build with care. You should be careful, says Paul. Because even though he assumes we've been caught up by the joy of salvation and of working with Jesus, he's also deeply, profoundly, personally aware of constant temptation. Temptation toward creature comfort. Temptation toward personal safety. Temptation toward personal pleasure, toward personal gain, toward personal glory. And we don't have the time to go through his whole story right now, but if we did, we would see how he was impacted by each one of these or how members of his team, people that travel with him and minister with him were impacted by them, and some of them were literally taken out by them. So just one example, in a letter to Timothy, Paul talks about how he's all alone, how Demas deserted him because he loved 
this world. Now, I don't know how much you spent time thinking about that little phrase, but consider this. Demas deserted him. What did he desert? The missionary work that they were on together. So Demas is a part of his missionary team. In other words, Demas felt the call to the mission field. He left things to go with Paul on his missionary journeys. He, in other words, was moved by the Spirit into ministry. He's giving of himself sacrificially. He's traveling. He's working with Paul. And then from that place, Paul says, He's left me. He's abandoned me because he loved this world. In other words, it's possible to have such a strong start, to have a calling from the Lord, and then to have it wane, to walk away from it, to go lukewarm, to cease to work, to stop to use the gifts, to settle in to loving this world. Paul is personally aware of the danger. And so he reminds Christians of what Jesus taught very clearly, that what we do with our new lives in Christ not only matters deeply, but actually there's going to be a reckoning at the last day for how we lived all of them. Were we faithful to our master? So Paul's drawing on Many teachings that, that Jesus gave. Jesus not only told us to seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, dedicate your heart, your mind, your life's strength and energy to working for, seeking after, proclaiming, embodying all that you are. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And then all these things that you need, they'll be added, they'll be given. Don't worry about them. Seek the kingdom. Jesus taught that, but he also taught through a number of parables that actually we're going to have to answer for the, the, the gifts that he gave us, the talents, the abilities. There's going to be this moment where we stand before him and we have to answer to the master for our faithfulness. And so I want to say at this point, I want to remind us that we're both children of God, dearly loved children. And we're also servants of God. We're not slaves. Far from it. We've moved from slaves to sin to becoming children of God. But as children, we're also servants. We belong to him. Remember, he purchased us by his blood and he redeemed us for himself. So we often quote for comfort, what's my only comfort in life and in death, that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And we quote it for comfort and it indeed brings comfort, but it's more than that. It's not just for my comfort. It's for his glory. I belong to him. I am his servant. I am to do his will. And so, just like this Sichuan earthquake revealed the quality of what people built, Paul says, this day of reckoning, this day of judgment, it's going to bring about a revealing 
of the quality of our life and our service to the Lord. Were we really yielded? Were we really seeking his kingdom? Were we really doing his will? Paul says, if anybody builds on this foundation of Jesus using gold, silver, costly stones, that's one group, or wood, hay, or straw, that's another group, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So you've got one set of materials that's expensive. It takes time and money to be able to get. It doesn't come easily and yet it has a strength to it or a value. It can make it through a refined fire. And then you've got another set of materials that's cheap. It's easy to get, easy to build with, but when the fire comes, it doesn't last. It gets burned up. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what will this fire be testing? Well, here are some questions that might help us to know what will be asked of us on that day of reckoning. Was the primary focus of our lives truly seeking God's kingdom, trusting that all of our other needs would be added to us as Jesus promised? Or did we primarily focus on building the life we want with a side dose of serving Jesus? Did we pursue personal pleasure over kingdom sacrifice? or the other way around? Were we obedient to Jesus' clear instructions, proclaim the gospel, make disciples, teach people to obey all I've commanded you? Or did we leave this to others, rationalizing it away as too hard or too unknown or too something? Did we show that we value what God values? Obedience to Jesus Christ, reliance on the Holy Spirit, a growing life of prayer, deep reverence for His Word, commitment to Christian community that stirs us on in faith and obedience, a love and a care for the poor. Or did we value independence, lack humility, struggle to submit to wise counsel and ignore the poor? Were we faithful, courageous, and generous in using our gifts to serve God, trusting His grace to be sufficient as we make mistakes? Or did we let fear and stinginess dictate the burying of our talents and the use of our time? What was the posture and motivation of our heart as we served? Did we do everything as unto Jesus Christ, as an act of returned love for the love that he has for us? Or did anything other than love motivate us? Did we serve with the hope of receiving something to please people? Did all of our speech and actions seek to draw attention to Jesus, to bring God glory? Or did we speak and act in such a way as to draw attention to ourselves? 
Did we give God access to all of us? Was he really able to send us anywhere, use us in any way, and give us any assignment? Are we surrendered? Or did we place limitations on our availability? Friends, I hope these questions are helpful, but I want to stress in all of this, this, this uh, reckoning, this judgment, these questions that will be asked about us, it's not about perfection. It's not at all about perfection. It's about the level of our obedience, the motivation of our hearts, and the quality and even quantity of our work and sacrifice. What did we do to serve Jesus Christ in obedience to his clear commands? And what was the condition of our hearts as we did these things? A day is coming, says Paul, when the answers to these questions will be absolutely and perfectly clear. When each of us will stand before God, he will review our lives in Christ And there will be no hiding of anything. Everything will be revealed. Everything exposed. Everything in plain sight. And in that moment, the refining fire of God's holy love will burn away anything and everything that isn't pure and holy because nothing impure is coming into the new creation. And so for some of us, This will be a very painful experience. Even though our salvation isn't at stake, we will suffer great loss. We'll realize we didn't do much, or what we did was awfully bent, or we'll learn things about the posture and the attitude of our heart. And so in the same way that the Sichuan earthquake caused school administrators and government officials and construction managers to suddenly see with startling clarity that their hearts and their decisions were horribly evil. So this will be a day when some Christians see with painful clarity that they aren't actually serving Jesus fully or faithfully or with a pure heart. And everything will be made clear. And they'll still enter the new creation. But nothing, or not much, will come with them. They'll see the works of their lives burned up in a flash because most of it really wasn't about Jesus or for Jesus. You know, as I, as I try to imagine, what does this feel like? This, this loss, this exposure, this inability to get back. It, it's, it was, it was really, hard to think of a human experience that could could come close to that but the closest i could uh, i could imagine thinking of was just imagine that you've got a a home and your home is filled with things that are precious to you and you have a a house fire and it burns down not only your home but everything that's in it and you've got no insurance to replace it you got you got to start completely over okay so everything 
that you had, everything that you were building, is gone. And here you are, kind of naked, needing to start over. It, it's a it's a feeling that uh, a, a profound sense of loss. But even more than that, it's it's partnered with this painful clarity, where for some people, I think a blissful self deception once existed. I, I just can't emphasize enough how how I think how painful it's going to be for some people. When I was in high school, uh, there was a band called PFR that had a song named Great Lengths, and it had these lyrics. They were going through my mind as I was trying to think about this, this sense of loss. And, and the lyrics are, Why didn't I go to such great lengths to try to please you instead of trying to please myself? The singer, is, you can just hear him. He's filled with deep regret as he looks back and he considers and now sees how he was so often trying to please himself. And... What I want to say this morning is a couple of things. One, that that regret of pleasing self and of partial obedience and impure motives, it's a part of what many believers will experience on the day of judgment. But secondly, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be, and it won't be for many Christians. For many Christians, those who heed Jesus' warning, this will be a day of incredible joy, a day of surprise and a day of reward bundled all together. For many, this is a day to look forward to because it's a day of validation and vindication and and even of praise from God. A day of rich welcome and of Jesus making good on the promise that he's made everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or field for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So this is a day of hearing Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of or entrust you with many things. Enter the joy of your master. I think that's what we need to hear first and foremost, that God has joy, that he's He's telling us this because he longs for us to live with and enter his joy. He doesn't want us to experience that that loss and that sense of shame and that um, getting things burned up. What he wants is for us to enter his joy more deeply. So, friends, this is going to be a day when intentional sacrifice is recognized and it's lifted up. It's going to be a day when generosity and integrity, purity and suffering for Jesus are all elevated. And when every act of love and of kindness in Jesus' name is noted and it's celebrated, it's going to be a day when when many people, many believers, uh, are just filled to overflowing with a deep and profound sense of awe and gratitude bundled all together because even though we've done these things for Jesus, we know we don't deserve praise or reward for it. We do them because we love him. We do them because we're servants. And yet here he is in all of his goodness saying, I've looked, I've reviewed, and I say to you, well done, enter my joy. And he pours out even more on us. So you think about these two different types of experiences, this like day of deep grief for some and incredible joy for others. 
And I'm thinking about these, and I'm thinking about us as a church family, and I'm thinking that perhaps these two sort of, as I painted them, these two polar extremes of desolation and overflowing joy, they're probably not an apt description of where most of us are at right now. Perhaps most of us, if we took account right now, would fall somewhere in between, along a spectrum, in a space where there is definitely a measure of obedience and sacrifice. But yet there's also less than pure motives, less than full obedience, and a struggle to fully abandon ourselves to the work of the gospel. Which again, I think, makes it so abundantly gracious that our Heavenly Father, in His deep love for each of us, prepares us for this coming day. He prepares us because He loves us. You know, there were people in Sichuan province who were pressing school officials and government overseers and construction managers and were saying, these buildings are not right. They're not right. And when the day comes that there is an earthquake that hits our region, you will be so sorry you've not made things right. And yet, if you do, you'll be so, so glad that you did. There were warnings being given. And they were warning because they loved. And as you'll remember us saying in weeks past, to love, to love is to give warning and to prepare. And God loves us so deeply. He doesn't want us to experience the pain of loss or shame on the day of Christ. In His love, He wants each of us to be filled with joy. And so He's He's given us a reward, a, a warning. He's He's saying two things to us. One, the first one He's saying is. Listen, all of your obedience and your sacrifice, it's going to be rewarded. So keep going. In fact, press deeper. Spend yourself and be spent for me and my kingdom and you will not regret it. You cannot outgive me. But it takes faith to make sacrifices in this life. And so I'm encouraging you, my children, you will be rewarded. That's number one. But the second thing he's saying to us is, Be clear, nothing impure is coming into the new creation with you. Get rid of everything that isn't of Jesus, for Jesus, and upon Jesus right now. Build your life very carefully upon Jesus, who is the first fruit of my new creation. Everything that's not of him will be exposed and stripped away at this judgment. And friends, even as God gives us this encouragement from a heart of deep love, I think it's easy for us to still be afraid of this judgment. Maybe I'm maybe I'm projecting a little bit of my own fear, but I just I think most of us have got questions and uncertainty about this day. You know, we wonder Oh, what will it be like to face him? We feel squeamish. We feel hesitant. We feel unsure. And so I want to tell you a story that I believe will help us, believe it or not, it will help us to joyfully anticipate that judgment. So here it is. You know that uh, Ann and I are reaching the stage where we can now leave our kids home alone. And so on several occasions... We've left them home for the evening and given some instructions. 
And while we've been away, the kids did not do what I used to do when left alone. At least I don't think they did. They didn't sneak chocolate chippets, melt them in the microwave, and make their own fudge. Right? Okay, so maybe I need to double-check that. But anyways, uh, I don't think they did that. But what they did do that I want to tell you about, on several occasions, they spent their entire evening cleaning our home folding our laundry, and even preparing a yummy treat for us. And each of the times they've done this, they've actually been on pins and needles waiting for us to come home. Why? Because they've been thinking about us and doing things for us, trying to make us happy the whole time we've been away. And so they're actually eager to show us. When we get home, they're eager, they're waiting for us, like even by the door, and they're eager to parade us around the home and to have us inspect their work and to taste their treats. And even though some of the treats have tasted um, well, interesting, <laughs> we've still been delighted to shower them with praise and to reward them for their efforts to please us. Can you hear this? They haven't had an ounce of fear about our return. In fact, just the opposite. They're eager and they're excited precisely because they've been working with us in mind the entire time we've been gone. This is how it can be for us as Christians. If we are totally consecrated to the Lord and we're living a life where everything is for Him and with Him in mind, we don't need to fear this judgment. We'll be eager and expectant for Him to review what we've done. And even if some of the things that we've prepared taste a little interesting to Him, we trust His graciousness and His heart's desire to reward our efforts. And because we're working with Him in mind, we want Him to purify us. We want Him to get rid of anything that's impure. And so the real question for us today is, am I totally consecrated? Am I set apart, dedicated, and serving the Lord? Am I able to eagerly anticipate His return because I'm living my whole life with his pleasure in mind. We're the bride. He's the groom. And even though there's going to come a day when there's just the most joyful union or reunion between bride and groom, the love between bride and groom still exists right now. And we can live with joyful anticipation of the groom's return because we as bride are not only longing for that return, but we're working for it with all that we are, working to please our groom. So friends, we're just about at the end of this year of discipleship. Next week we're going to come to a joyful close of our study of the gospel tool as intentional preparation for deeper obedience to Jesus Christ. 
And you've already put in much, much effort to grow in this obedience. What I want to say is I, I believe this next month marks a turning point for us as a congregation. We're going to finish the series. We're going to spend a Sunday on October 17 celebrating what the Lord's been doing in our midst. We'll, we'll dedicate significant time to sharing testimonies of our growth in the Lord. And then on a Sunday, October 24, we're going to intentionally focus on consecration, on offering ourselves fresh to the Lord. Lord, use us. Lord, send us. Lord, direct us. Lord, spend us. And I'm saying us, not me, not me, because we need community for this. Because laying down our lives one moment, one decision, one day at a time for the long haul, it's difficult and it requires much encouragement. And so we need as a whole church family to be intentionally, joyfully focused on this obedience and this consecration so that we can encourage each other's sacrifice and obedience all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we imagine that as we stand before you on that day, the day, and as we look into your eyes and we see depth of love and purity and goodness holiness and majesty all bundled together we will be so magnetically attracted to you and bowing down before you that within our hearts will be this longing to give you all that we are and all that we can simply by seeing you. And so, Lord, our prayer right now is that you would give us greater revelation of yourself, all that you are in these days. As Paul prayed for the Ephesians, asking for a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know you better, we pray the same thing for ourselves. Lord Jesus, help us to know you better so that we can love you better. And help us to live with joyful anticipation of this day of reckoning with you, our Lord and Master, because we're already consecrated and offering you all that we are, trusting your grace to work out our imperfections. We love you, Lord, and we pray that that you will lead us through this, not just weeks but season of consecration ahead and that through this season of offering ourselves to you afresh lord jesus that you will bear more fruit through us through our congregation than we can ask or imagine for your glory lord we love you we pray this in your name jesus amen